So today we start uh, or get back into the series, Do I Stay Christian, based on Brian McLaren's book by the same name. Uh, it's a very provocative book, and uh, the reason I wanted to talk about anti-Semitism today, even though he starts without pretty early in his book, is because today's Rosh Hashanah. And I thought, what better day to hit this than today? And so I want to give you some stories about uh, my story growing up and what things have been like for, for me on this plane. And um, probably we'll, we'll work to offend everybody by the end of today. So look forward to that. Um, so I grew up in a very Christian bubble. My dad was a pastor, as you know, and stayed in various forms of ministry. Uh, I was born in Kansas City. Uh, we lived in a suburb, uh, and it was people who looked just like me, very Protestant. Uh, I don't even, uh, I didn't know that there was much other than Christian, you know, at that day and age. I don't think I, if I knew any Jewish people, I didn't know it uh, because we moved from Kansas City when I was eight years old to a small town in Kansas called Ottawa, Kansas. It was about 10,000, 15,000 people-ish, something like that. And as far as I know, I didn't know any Jewish people there either. It was quite a bubble. Uh, I never heard anything derogatory in my family of origin ever uh, that uh, hinted of anything anti-Semitic. Uh, my dad led trips to the Holy Land and spoke glowingly of his friends that he met over there, tour guide that he was good friends with, and I met him at some point, and they clearly had a strong relationship. So never saw anything overt at all uh, that suggested that there was, that that was even a thing. Um, I just wasn't in an environment where I could know anybody that was Jewish. And then we moved to Michigan, where my dad had a different ministry. And in that space, we were part, uh, we lived in a little town called Okemos, which is a suburb of Lansing, Michigan, the state capital. And it kind of goes Lansing, East Lansing, which is where Michigan State University is, and then Okemos uh, beyond that. And a lot of business professionals, uh, professors from the university lived in Okemos. It was kind of a wealthy suburb of that time. We weren't wealthy. We were middle class, but somehow we, we scored a place there. And my folks wanted me there because they knew that the, the school system there was nationally ranked at that time. Uh, very academic. Uh, I think like 90% of my high school graduating class went on to college, which is really, really high. Lots of Jewish people uh, in Okemos. And frankly, I didn't really know they were Jewish. Uh, they were just my friends until holidays would come around, and they would practice in their tradition uh, different things. They'd wear something different, respect different rules. And then I figured out, oh, oh, they're Jewish. And at that point, a strange thing happened is they became the other for me. And as with any kind of other, uh, we don't it's unfamiliar to us, right? Sometimes it's on skin tone. Sometimes it's on different cultures, ethnicities, nationalities, what have you. Anybody that's the other, this is a normal human behavior kind of a thing. And so I had this other who were my friends who I went to class with and got along with and studied with and partied with and did other things with, played sports with. Uh, but now there was this other of their religion. And I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. Uh, as a Christian growing up in a bubble, you know, I only heard Christian voices about Jesus as Messiah. So, you know, one of the things I would entertain in my head was, gosh, how come they don't get it? <laughs> we have the Messiah in Jesus. It's so obvious to us. <laughs> and so I was just kind of curious, didn't really want to dance on that too much because it felt kind of uncomfortable. And they clearly were not disturbed that I was Christian. 
they were just trucking along doing their thing. And so, thank God, most of my relationship with them just continued as growing friendships and just respect and not letting it get to me or not letting that become a challenge for me, even though I still had theological questions. At that time in my development, I couldn't have had a substantive conversation, perhaps, like I could have. Well, when I went to uh, the Chicago area to work on my master's to become a pastor, I was a pastor or an associate pastor at a church in Moraine Valley, which is a south suburb of Chicago. And I was the young adult pastor. And when we had a Monday Thursday service one year, uh, which is the service of communions when communion started uh, before communion or around the communion experience. Uh, Jesus mandated that his disciples wash feet for each other as a sign of mutual servanthood. That's where the mandate comes. And I remember it was a very solemn service and no foot washing happened. We kind of gave that part up, but we liked the bread and the cup thing. And anyway, after the service, which is very solemn, I'm talking to one of my young adults. I said, well, how did you find the experience? How's it messing with you? And she had a very serious look on her face. So I leaned in and she said, I just don't know if I can ever forgive them. And I was, for, forgive who? Forgive the Jews for killing Jesus. And I was just kind of stunned. And like I usually do in situations like this, I decided to lighten it up. That's my way of getting out of a difficult conversation. So I just kind of said, well, I don't think any of them that actually killed Jesus are here with us today. So maybe it's time to <laughs> move on from that. It blew my mind. I didn't know how to respond to that. It was my first taste, my first experience of anti-Semitism right there in front of me. The Jews collectively to this day responsible for killing Jesus and being against everything that Christianity, therefore, is about. Well, it turns out that this actually had its origins, the, the idea this way within Christianity itself, unfortunately, started in the Bible itself. Now, most of you know, uh, if you've been around Crosswalk very long, that uh, a lot of my doctoral work was done in the Gospel of John. And anytime I'm with a mainline or progressive pastor and they find this out, they've got a lot of questions for me because there are entire traditions that pretty much don't look at the gospel of John at all. Uh, we had a associate assistant pastor type person here many years ago uh, who went to a Presbyterian seminary in the Bay Area and she would, she would laugh about it. She'd say, I don't even know if they teach a course on the gospel of John <laughs> because they just throw the whole thing out. And one of the reasons why they throw the whole thing out is because John uses language that gave root to anti-Semitism in the early church. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. They kind of look like the same. That's why with one eye, you can look at all three of them. They borrowed from root sources and added to their own for their own context and all that. That's why they're a little bit different from each other. And they were all kind of wrapped up Oh, decades after Jesus' life, like many decades after Jesus' life formalized. The Gospel of John, however, adds more uh, decades. So you're talking toward the end of the first century, like 90s uh, AD, CE, is when John finally came about. By that time, remember what I talked about last week, uh, 70 AD, 70 CE, is when uh, Rome squashed Jerusalem after an uprising. 
And they burned the city down. They killed a lot of the people. They sent the rest into the diaspora. Uh, and at that time, Judaism started to rebuild itself into a, not a temple-based Judaism, but a rabbinical Judaism, which didn't focus anymore on needing to sacrifice anything, but actually sounds a whole lot more Christian, where it was really focused on you find your redemption and you find your grace through a careful following of the, the law, the, the books, the prophets, the people of the book, that's how you're going to be redeemed from this point forward. We don't need an altar for the sacrifice anymore because we have the word of God to guide us. And that's how we find redemption. Sounds very Baptist, doesn't it? <laughs> well, when that happened, and because of other things, there was a growing rift between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. By the end of the first century, uh, there were very few Jewish Christians left. It was almost an entirely Gentile thing. The Gentile Christians were happy to, to move forward as they went on into uh, a lot of the Roman Empire, and the Jewish people were just fine with them moving on, and in some cases really didn't want that Jewish or the Gentile influence in there because it, they didn't jibe well, uh, the, the Gentile theology and the Gentile uh, uh, informed Christianity because they tailored the message to a Gentile word using Gentile images and mythology and so forth. It didn't fit so well. So there was growing enmity between the two. By the middle of the second century, uh, there was a real good reason not to identify with any Jewish people. And that was because the Roman government at that point uh, was tired of squashing Jewish uprisings. And if you were associated with Judaism at all, you were probably going to be in trouble. So the church was just more than happy to distance itself. Well, John, in his writing, uh, there was an unintended consequence that came about. He should have written more clearly, specifically, that it was the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that conspired with the Roman Empire to kill Jesus. If he would have just said it that way, because that's exactly what happened. The Sadducees who ran the show in Jerusalem were ultra clear that Jesus was challenging them and their leadership and how they'd gone astray, how they were abusing the very poor that they were supposed to look after. They were hyper-legalistic and they were hurting people. And Jesus was calling them out in no uncertain terms. That's why they went to the Roman authorities and with their blessing conspired together to get rid of Jesus. But John doesn't say that. He just says the Jews conspired to kill Jesus. The Jews. So that anybody reading that forward can associate Jews with those who want to kill Jesus and his followers. Unfortunately, it didn't end there. Now, Brian McLaren gives us this out of his book on the next slide. From late in the first century onward, beginning with the author of the fourth gospel, John, and later, including, these are like the biggest names, by the way, in our history, including Tertullian, Origen, Chrysostom, Jerome, Ambrose, and Augustine, many of Christianity's most revered leaders vilified Jews, setting the stage for inhumane acts of persecution against Jewish people in the coming centuries, from ghettoization and banishments to forced conversions and mass executions. Fast forward several centuries into the time of the bubonic plague, and we have ourselves in a village, a city, uh, in France. So on the next slide, on Valentine's Day, 
1349 in Strasbourg, France, the citizens of Strasbourg rounded up the community of 2,000 Jews, brought them to the Jewish cemetery, and said it was their religion that was leading them to poison the wells where Christians drank. And that was the source of the bubonic plague. They villainized the Jewish people. They had either to renounce their religion or be killed on the spot. Half of the Jews held to their religion, and they were burned alive. A rabbi who uh, lived after that event had another take on it. He brought in another motive, a motive for us to consider. That rabbi said, everything that was owed to the Jews was canceled. The council, city council, took the cash that the Jews possessed and divided it among the working men proportionately. The money was indeed the thing that killed the Jews. If they had been poor and if the feudal lords had not been in debt to them, they would not have been burnt. So mixed motives for why uh, people might kill somebody, as we saw in that situation. Interestingly, uh, France was a Catholic nation, and Pope Charles uh, IV pardoned the city for this atrocity just months after the event. So you have an anti-Semitic-inspired uh, move that conveniently uh, cleans up the ledger for a lot of people that owed money to the Jews and also robbed those Jewish people who'd just been killed uh, for financial gain. And not only does that work for us financially, it pencils out well, but now we have the church and the one who speaks for God saying, it's pardoned. It's, it's okay. Perhaps you even did God's work. Now, some of you who grew up in the Catholic tradition might be feeling really sheepish, and some of you who grew up in the Protestant tradition are like, whew, I'm glad I'm not Catholic. I don't have to own that. Well, well, unfortunately, there was a man named, not unfortunately, that there was a man named Martin Luther, but unfortunately, Martin Luther was not so evolved himself. Remember, he influenced an entire Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, coming from the Catholic tradition. He is the most important theological voice in Germany's history. And this is what he said about Jewish people within 150 years or so. Jews' private houses must be destroyed and devastated. They could be lodged in stables. Let the magistrates burn their synagogues and let whatever escapes be covered with sand and mud. Let them be forced to work. And if this avails nothing, we will be compelled to expel them like dogs in order to expose ourselves, in order not to expose ourselves to incurring divine wrath and eternal damnation from the Jews and their lies. We are at fault and not slaying them. This is something you would expect to read in Nazi Germany under Hitler, not centuries before from Martin Luther. Anybody give me a wow on that? Yeah. So anti-Semitism was strong all the way up until then, and it kept on growing. 
World War I happens, the worst war, the Great War. Nobody'd seen destruction and death like it before. Uh, then we had uh, a global depression starting in the United States and then becoming uh, depression everywhere, which made it more difficult for everybody to survive everywhere. Germany, uh, as punishment for their work in World War I, were heavily penalized financially and also uh, not given the right to have their own military anymore. There were a lot of people that were frustrated and angry at, at that, Adolf Hitler being one of them. While he was in prison, uh, he wrote Mein Kampf, which made it very clear his views on Jewish people, scapegoating them literally, blaming Jewish people entirely for all of Germany's problems. Not shy, not PC at all, just our problem in Germany are the Jewish people. If we get rid of the Jewish people, it's going to be better for us. He used very powerful, hate-filled language. He used fear as a, as a manipulative tool to get people riled up and following him. He had such a presence that the other political leaders in uh, Germany felt like they needed to do something with him. So they allowed him to be chancellor, but their idea was... We'll, we'll, we'll kill him through more and more committees than he can ever handle. We'll bury him in the system so that his voice will be diminished and we can go on with our more moderate approach into the future. But the problem was his voice just kept resonating with people, tapping into the fear, tapping into the hatred of the other. They were not shy in their propaganda. Propaganda, by the way, became a real thing um, globally, and it also was here in the United States in the political front. Uh, really, about this time in the 20s and 30s, that's when the machine started to come around. We realized that fear was a good tool, and political campaigns could really work heavily with that fear in massive ways with mass communication tools. Well, Hitler was a master at that with his team. If you uh, dare to watch Ken Burns' latest uh, work, it's a three-part episode of U.S. and the Holocaust. I dare you to watch it. Three two-hour two sessions on that. You'll find out for yourself that the printed material that the German government was putting was absolutely disgusting. It was stuff that you're only going to see in the darkest, most vile corners of social media today. It, the, the exaggerated views and racism that they showed toward Jewish people is absolutely disgusting. I can't, can't believe that thinking people would look at this and do anything but vomit and throw it away and take out, imprison, whatever, but diminish the voices of hatred that were so strong and filled with rage and using fear to get everybody riled up. But you have an entire country who's frustrated by what has happened politically, economically. They feel like they've been literally castrated. And here you have Hitler coming up with all kind of manliness, saying, we can take this back. And so even though they were not allowed to have a military, he began building a military from scratch again. He had a long-range plan of figuring out how to get rid of Jewish people out of his country. Now, luckily, luckily, uh, Germans uh, love to keep notes on everything. 
very organized people. So that's why we have a lot of the information that we have, including this little beauty uh, that I want to share with you. As they were designing their system for how to get rid of Jewish people out of Germany, they were wondering, well, what do we do with all these people that we're kicking out of their own homes in Germany? And so they looked around through recent history around the world about what other countries did to get rid of unwanted people. Their primary inspiration was the United States and how the United States got rid of indigenous people who were in the way of westward expansion. They saw how we created uh, spaces, reservations on unwanted land until we wanted it. Unwanted land with their own capacity to do whatever they wanted for Germany and Hitler's sake created camps for these people to live in as they were literally removed from their homes. These camps were built up before they were used. Camps that would later become concentration camps started off as just places to put the Jewish people we don't want. Well, after they thought about that, they thought, well, how are we going to get them to leave? I mean, they're not going to want to just leave their homes. And so once again, they looked for more inspiration in recent history. How do you turn the screws on people that you don't like, don't really want around to make it really, really uncomfortable for them? Their inspiration? Jim Crow laws in the United States. The things that we allowed in our free country, separate but equal, <laughs> Uh, that was the methodology that they started with in Germany. Rights were taken away from Jewish people. First, it started off fairly light. You don't get to vote. By the end, before it got really bad, they weren't allowed to work. They weren't allowed to sell goods. They weren't allowed to buy goods. They weren't allowed to own property. Well, what do you do? How do you live? I'm not making this stuff up. This is in the books. Look it up. It's just history. By the way, when word of this got out that there was such a focused target on Jewish people in Germany, you know what the reaction was in neighboring countries and in the United States? It was that it was a bunch of baloney. It was completely fabricated. None of that is actually happening. Nobody could believe it, and nobody really wanted to believe it. Because attached to believing it meant maybe we'd have to do something about it, and that something that you may have to do about it has to do with immigrations, with re refugees coming into the countries. Every country is struggling because of this depression that's been going on in the whole world. Every country saying, how do we protect our own? We don't have enough resources, we don't have enough jobs to welcome anybody else, including the United States. So as history unfolded in the United States, you had deep division in our country. The overwhelming majority of people in our country, by the way, did not want any more immigrants, especially Jewish immigrants. That's in the books. Gallup polls telling us this. The overwhelming majority, we don't want especially them here taking our jobs. Does that sound familiar at all? <laughs> that was the rhetoric that was used because of also things that we can also relate to now in our time in history, rhetoric and political organizations also 
Sounds familiar. Isolationist thinking uh, was clearly popularized in that day, and with many people from Hollywood helping promote the cause. People that I, I don't respect quite as much as I once did because they lent their voices to the message that was not just isolationism, an America first thing. That's their rhetoric that they used in the 1930s. An America first rhetoric. That's their words. Charles Lindbergh, that's his platform. The famous flight guy, that's him. But also added to it an unvarnished anti-Semitism. Around on that period, Madison Square Garden was filled to capacity. Tens of thousands of people. Nazi party in the United States using all the language that we think may have just happened in Germany was happening here on our soil. The sentiment for most Americans at that time through polls that we can look back now is that when Americans were asked, what do they think about what's happening in Germany? First, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that what we're being told about mass murder, uh, lining up on a pit. We have video footage of this. Uh, people lined up on the top of a pit and being shot 12 at a time, and then another 12 at a time. So you get a mass grave of hundreds at a time in one spot. Uh, that kind of atrocity is happening. America does not believe it because of propaganda. Does that sound familiar? What news can we trust? We certainly, no way would that happen over there. What's more, the way that American people were polling at that time is when asked, why is this happening to the Jewish people? The sentiment in America was, it's the Jews' fault. Hmm. Americans wouldn't believe it until it was way too late. After the camps were liberated, after American troops went in and the only people left in those concentration camps were those who were too weak to escape. It's only when our own troops went and saw what was happening, could see the skulls, could see the bones, could see the ovens, could see the pyres where human flesh was burned. It was only when our government leaders showed up, it was only when reporters and editors from U.S. media showed up that they went back to the United States and said, everything you heard was real. Everything you heard. There was a sweeping, overwhelming change of tide and people's sentiment toward what was happening at that time. Of course, we didn't get directly involved in World War II. We supplied the United Kingdom uh, with military arms so they could fight the war, kind of like we're doing with Ukraine. We didn't really get involved until Pearl Harbor. And then we were there in force, and eventually you, you can read history. But until then, America was not, not moved to do anything. It just happened. And again, it is a complex issue there are multiple layers and why people believe what they do, but make no mistake, anti-Semitism was absolutely in the water and in the air.
even if your family of origin never spoke it out of their mouth at all. It was in the culture. It was in the water. It's in the air. And we, as a people, are not unaffected. Just like with other isms, we have it with us. We have it with us. You know what a long, let's see, what is it, a long exposure shot is in photography? You know what that is? That's when you keep the, the lens open, uh, the, whatever, the, the aperture open or whatever that thing's called, <laughs> the shutter open for an extended period of time. You see these, they're really quite dramatic. Uh, if you get into like a dark park and see uh, photography with this, uh, like of the sky, you've ever seen that where the, where the stars are streaking, streaking across the sky. Sometimes you see this with traffic in big cities and it just looks like, you know, lines of light uh, with a still background kind of a thing. Everything that happens during that time that the shutter is open is witnessed in the photo. Everything from the beginning of the shot to the end of the shot. We are in our lives long exposure photos that are still going. Everything that has been a part of us, our own history, our own personal time from our date of birth is included in that, but it's not just included in that because our frame starts long before our first breath. We are in an environment that has shaped those who shaped us. It's a part of everything. And therefore, it is nonsense for us to say that somehow we are immune to the shaping forces that have shaped us. It is a part of who we are. The more we're aware, the less power it might have. Of course, we're clearly aware that we have these issues happening right here in the United States. One of the worst recent events in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, August 10 and 11, 2017, there was a neo-Nazi uh, protest, a counter-protest. You remember it. You have guys with their tiki torches walking the streets, and what are they chanting? You will not replace us. The you meaning Jews. The idea of a replacement global conspiracy that they're out of, wanting to control the whole world. You will not replace us still with us. It will always be with us. It will always be with us. What are we going to do with it? So I wondered, you know, this was one of the chapters in Brian McLaren's book. He has 10 chapters like this, where he's kind of bringing up the question, why would you want to stay Christian in light of 10 different things? Maybe a terrible idea for a book, because if he's trying to keep people in the fold, then uh, you know, by the time they get to chapter 10, they're like, I'm tapping out, man. <laughs> Just forget the whole thing. I, I can relate to that. And at the end of every chapter, McLaren's agreeing with the people who might be feeling this way. I can agree. But then he spends the next two sections of the book talking about, well, what do we do with it? Is there any reason to stay in the game? So as I hear about all this, and I know that this stuff is not false, this anti oh, this is something I forgot to tell you. Even after everything, even after the war, all the, all the pictures are taken, and it's in the press. Do you know how many people most Americans thought died? Jewish people died at uh, German hands? One million. 
One million. Before Hitler started his stuff, there were nine million Jews in Europe. By the time he was stopped, six million had been killed. Six million, two-thirds of the European Jewish population wiped out. Men, women, children. Watch Ken Burns and let it mess with you. One of the confounding things for me is I'm, I'm a Jesus guy. I'm a Jesus follower. I could never make this jump. How in the world do people who claim to be Christian make the jump to hating Jewish people? Like, I mean, I understand the history behind it, but <laughs> Jesus was Jewish. His primary followers, Jewish. How in the world could we hate the people that were him, <laughs> that looked like him? The people of the book, that's Jesus. Now, there's been a sort of a recent enamoration with Jewish people uh, in the last several decades from the evangelical camp, which is really interesting. And there's some things to think about that too. Part of it's a little bit um, apocalyptic, uh, has to do with the eschaton, uh, where some of the hope is that if we can rebuild Jerusalem, if we can rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, then the sacrifices could get started. That will fulfill some biblical prophecy. So Jesus will come back. So yay, Jewish people. That's kind of that's kind of a broad stroke. That's part of the rhetoric and part of the thinking that's out of there. It's nuts, sure, but it's there. <laughs> so it's this weird thing. So I grew up with a respect for Jewish people. I don't understand. So it's very difficult for me to, to understand this. So I thought, well, what would Jesus do in a situation like this, where he was confronted with somebody that he hates and that everybody in his ear hates? And luckily we have a passage, strangely, in the Gospel of John that gives us just that. We'll get to the text in a minute, but first the backdrop. So where Jesus grew up in the north part of what we call Israel, it's called the Galilean region, uh, Sea of Galilee, um, a lot of agricultural folk. Uh, Jesus was a carpenter up there. He may have had some jobs up in some bigger Roman-based cities uh, to the north uh, that you don't hear much about in the Bible, but they were like the big deal cities. Jesus lived in smaller villages and stuff. He was dirt poor, as were most of his friends. Then in the south, where Jerusalem was, uh, you had the, the Judean region, and that's where Jerusalem is. It's where the center of uh, really the academics of Jerusalem were, and in between those two areas was a region called Samaria. Now, if you've heard me talk about this before, this is review. Well, there was a deep uh, theological rift between Samaritan Jewish people and the other two Jewish people, so it was an in-house fight. The Samaritan Jews were initially, more conservative than the rest. They wanted the Bible to be this big. The other Jewish people who were in the north and south wanted the Bible to include more voices, prophetic voices, the prophets. They wanted the Bible to be this big. That was the beginning of the fight. They split over what is the more conservative theology. And at first, the Samaritans were the more conservative group. Over time, they morphed in different things. There were some uh, intermarriages and things that uh, brought uh, more of a cosmopolitan theology to the Samaritans, and that just drove the others uh, nuts. So now the Judean and the Galilean uh, Jewish people were more conservative than the Samaritans, and they were calling them inbreds. They were calling them heretics, apostate, you name it. All of the derogatory stuff that we hear in anti-Semitism around the world today, the Jewish people were leveling against the Samaritans. Got it? 
Same kind of propaganda. This is what Jesus grew up with. So Jesus was down in Jerusalem doing his thing, and he tells his disciples, it's time to go back home, and we have to go through Samaria. The truth is he didn't have to go through Samaria. Most people did not want to go through Samaria. Most people wanted to go along the Jordan River and then cut up north along the river uh, to get back to the Galilean region, even though it took a lot longer and it was a harder journey. The reason why they'd take the longer journey is because they didn't want to go through Samaria, because they hated the Samaritans, if you can imagine. So Jesus says, we have to go through Samaria. He wanted to go into the enemy territory. So in the middle of the day, he finds himself at a well outside of a village. It's lunchtime, so he sends the boys in and out to get some food. And he stays there. And this woman shows up alone in the middle, hottest part of the day, a Samaritan woman. And Jesus starts to do all the wrong things. He says something to her treats her as an equal. He asks her if she could draw out a cup of water because he doesn't have anything to draw water. She immediately knows he's Jewish. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> why, would I give you, why, why would I give you some water? He goes into preacher mode and says, oh, if only you knew who you were talking to, you would ask and I would give you uh, living water that never runs out. She doesn't catch on. She's like, well, I want some of that so I don't have to lug this bucket here every day. It's, I, hate, I hate this. And he keeps talking, keeps going deeper, lets her know that he knows her story, which part of it would have been self-evident. She's alone in the heat of the day getting water. It's not when you draw water and you don't do it alone as a woman. He knows she's had a hard past, and she had. Multiple marriages probably uh, brought on by death. Go to the next brother, to the next brother, to the next brother. And the guy she's living with at that time is not her husband. None of the women want any association with her at all. She's ostracized in a country that the Jewish people ostracize. She's alone in the world. And yet Jesus sees her and has a conversation with her. She tries to get into theological argument about, well, where do you think the proper place to worship is, on our mountain or your mountain? Because that was one of the big rifts. And Jesus, instead of taking the bait, instead of fighting back one fist another, he takes an entirely different approach, which we see in this passage from John, he says to the woman, believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the father, neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews, through the Jewish story. But the time is coming. It has, in fact, come when what you're called will not matter. And where you go to worship will not matter. Hear this. Jesus is saying, this starts today because of the message that I am bringing into the world. I am telling you. It doesn't matter what you're called. It doesn't matter where you're worshiping. And then he unpacks it. The next slide, it says, it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the father, remember, father is Abba, which is daddy. That's the kind of people daddy, mommy, is looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship God must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. How does Jesus deal with the enemy? 
An enemy who wants to fight, he doesn't fight. He chooses to play the human game, treats her as a human being with dignity and respect, even though she in this exchange is trying to take some shots at him. He's saying, no matter what you're doing, I'm choosing not to fight back in this way because that's not who I am. That's not going to get us to the shalom of God. The only way we get to shalom is with shalom. You don't get to shalom with a fight. You get peace as the absence of conflict, but nothing more. You're just going to wait for the next thing to happen to blow up the, the powder keg. If we really want shalom, it's got to be with shalom. That's why Jesus, after that Maundy Thursday, where he started communion and all that, that's why he washed their feet serve each other, love each other, treat each other as better than yourselves. That's the way. When he was arrested that night, he didn't fight back. When Peter drew his sword and whacked off a soldier's ear, he super glued it with spiritual healing power right back onto his head, right? <laughs> he said, no more violence. When he was dragged into a false court that night with the religious leaders, he didn't fight back. When he was beaten to, to snot, unrecognizable, he didn't fight back. When Pilate wanted him to say something and wanted to bait him and stuff, he didn't fight back. His peaceful protest, his nonviolent way forward was the message to say, this is how we get peace, by shining a light on all the violence and how ridiculous it is. Here is a way forward. It was a compelling enough way for Mahatma Gandhi to believe it and follow it. And because of Jesus' approach, the UK left India. That's power. Martin Luther King insisted, even though there were other voices of violence saying, we got to bring it to arms. Martin Luther King was, this is not the way. You can disrupt, you can shine a light on things so that people understand what's happening. Very similar dynamics in the civil rights human, uh, uh, movement has happened with uh, World War II. People didn't believe what they were hearing, what was happening in the Deep South under Jim Crow. That's, that's just a bunch of baloney. Those are good folk down there. We have heritage down there, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't until they saw it. It wasn't until they saw it with their own eyes that they actually believed it. And then finally, even white pastors joined in the nonviolent march. And some of them got beaten, and some of them were killed because they didn't fight back. But they shone a light on it. How are we to act in the world today? Uh, this quote has been attributed and used by a lot of people. And uh, from what I found in my research today, it belongs to John Stuart Mill in 1867 when he gave an inaugural address at St. Andrews University. Next slide. He says... Let not anyone pacify his conscience by the delusion that he can do no harm if he takes no part and forms no opinion. Bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. He is not a good man who, without a protest, allows wrong to be committed in his name and with the means which, which he helps to supply because he will not trouble himself to use his mind on the subject. 
all bad characters need to get their end met is for good characters to be quiet and without action. We live in a country where free speech is a thing, which, which complicates life for us, doesn't it? Because we have this idea that all free speech must be free. We can easily look at violent acts of all kinds and condemn that. But what do we do with things that aren't so physical? What do we do with other forms of violence that make their way up to us? Violent speech, dehumanizing speech, that does still happen today. What do we do with that as Jesus followers? What do we do with other forms of violence like policies that were put on the books long before most of us were born, but that have had deep ramifications up until this point? What do we do as Jesus followers when we see somebody who's been victimized and continues to be victimized because of those same policies that are still informing things today? What do we do as Jesus people? Well, what John Stuart Mill is saying is that if you do nothing, if you just fold your arms and say, well, gee, that's too bad. Let's just say a little prayer. Hope God does something. What he's saying is that your silence on the matter, your silence with your mouth, your silence with your being, your silence with everything that you are, your silence is complicity. There are no innocent bystanders. There are no innocent bystanders. So um, a number of years ago, I stopped wearing this chain and cross. And the reason I stopped wearing it is because I was, not because I was not a fan of Jesus. I've never wavered from that. I'm a Jesus guy. I'm going to be following Jesus the rest of my life and want to do that. So we're clear on that, okay? <laughs> but I had a problem with the symbol. And not because the symbol of the sacrifice. I mean, we're called Crosswalk Community Church. I believe in everything the cross stands for. The problem was all the other people who were wearing the same symbol. And that there were some who were wearing the same symbol that seemed to be not, not just not saying something in the face of aggression, but actually behind it, using the rhetoric of hatred, of fear, of dehumanization, while wearing a cross, while carrying placards that had scripture references on them. Even some neo-Nazis who are claiming that their belief is founded in the heart of God. I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> it's like, hey, we're going to do our thing. I'm going to teach a different way that I think reflects Jesus well. But man, I do not want to be associated with that hatred because it's hatred, because it's violent, and that's not Jesus. So I even went so far as just, just a couple months ago, uh, I was looking for different symbols. I found this cool Celtic symbol that if you really used your imagination, you could kind of make out a cross, but it was really, really cool and got that and came with a chain. It was only 30 bucks. I was like, wow, I'll just, maybe I'll try this on for a while. Still speaking lots of truths from Christianity that I can totally get behind. And I got it and Lynn looked at it and she's like, dude, you're not cool enough to wear that necklace. <laughs> and I've learned to listen to my wife on such things. So 
So I don't wear that necklace. It's still hanging, you know, in my closet. Okay, someday I might be cool enough. <laughs> and then I started reading Brian McLaren's book. Because in the last two-thirds of his book, he starts saying things like, you know what? The Christianity that we may have, that is the loudest form of Christianity in the world today, at least in America, it may not be reflective of Jesus much. So you who found this other way of shalom, of grace, of love, of compassion, of nonviolence, are you just going to walk away? <laughs> are you just going to let all of history go? Are you going to let the message of Jesus just go? Because history has brought us to this point where the loudest, meanest voices have been in power for all this time? Are you just going to walk from that? Or are you going to realize that Jesus faced the same thing? And that when he said, pick up your cross and follow me, his original audience knew what that invitation was for. That you might actually pick up a literal cross. There might actually be a hill worth dying for in a nonviolent way because that's what God is trying to do in the world. That's what this means. And I wear it proudly. To be at least a voice among hopefully more and growing of people who understand what Jesus was trying to get at and try to proclaim that as loudly and as nonviolently and as compellingly and as graciously as we possibly can. It also means that we got to get a little uncomfortable in our circles. And we don't like discomfort. It means that if you're on the left side of the political aisle, and there are protests that are protesting things that really do need to change in the United States that have to do with equity and equality. But when those protests go clearly violent, we don't stay silent. We don't applaud the death and the destruction. We can have understanding. We can, under, we can appreciate why there's so much frustration that would lead to rioting and looting and all that. But we can say at the same time, that's not the way of Jesus. It means that when you hear people on the left side of the aisle that are using violent language as a Jesus follower who was not Republican or Christian, you can say to your peers, well, I get what you're saying, but that rhetoric alone is not going to lead us to shalom. It is going to deepen the chasm. There are ways to be strong and compelling, and there are ways to be angry and hateful and vile. And you have a choice. Jesus had a choice to engage in a fight with an easy opponent at a woman at a well in Samaria. And he chose the higher road and lifted her up and the entire village as well. This is our invitation. You who are on the left, when we hear violent speech, when we hear dehumanizing speech on, against the other side of the aisle, will we be the ones to say, well, I may agree with you, but I can't go with the violence. There are other ways. And we got to do the hard, hard academic work to do it. And for those of you on the right, it's the same thing. There was a clear case of where there's lots of hand washing going on right now. Uh, as 
people are trying to figure out what to do with January 6th. Was it insurrection? Was it, was it simple protests? And the fact is, probably it was a range of things, depending on who you were in the crowd. I believe that there were people in the crowd who were, who were just up in arms and frustrated, but not really up in arms, didn't want to do anything violent, but they were there to protest. And that's what they came to do, and that's what they wanted to do. And I believe, clearly, by evidence, that there were people who intended much, much more and decided to do whatever they could to make their case heard and, and were violent in their action. And their violence was not hidden. Their violence was worn around their shoulders. Their clubs, their guns, their knives, whatever, nothing about them said nonviolence. So you had a mixture of people there that day, all really frustrated. Those who were there just for nonviolent protests, who were just there to take a stand and let their voice be known. They would say, for sure, in their own defense, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't storm the Capitol. I didn't do anything. I'm just here to protest. And that's the point. They didn't do anything. If there were more of the people who believed in nonviolent protests, if there were lots more in the group of thousands who were there, it could have easily overwhelmed those that had other nefarious intent. Some who had the placards with the Christian texts, giving them authority. Where was their voice of saying, this is not the way. This is not the way. We all share responsibility. You are not off the hook. You cannot be silent. If you are silent in the face of hatred, of things like anti-Semitism, racism, other isms that we know exist, if you are silent, you are complicit. You are a part of the problem you're wanting to distance yourself from by saying, it's not me. And you may say, oh, but Pastor Pete, I pray real hard that God is going to come and rescue. Well, guess what? You are me are the hands and feet and mouthpieces of God. That's who we are. We are the people of the way of Jesus, a way that is counterintuitive and countercultural. We are the way of the people of shalom, who pursue shalom, well-being, harmony for all, with between all people and people and planet. And the only way we get to that shalom is with shalom. May it be so. Before we dare to utter the Lord's Prayer together, which will be a response type thing, have a song to kind of warm you up. So enjoy it on the screen as it floats by.
Stand with me and let's do this Lord's Prayer as a responsive reading. I'll do the classic stuff and italicized print, and you do the bolded stuff, which is an expression of what the classic stuff says. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On the next slide. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Amen. May it be so. My job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. I hope I was successful today. You guys have a great week. See you next week.